0: Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 4, uh, through 6. It's the latter half of Ephesians. Uh, they show us that when you apply the gospel to every part of your life, there's an inner newness that leads to radical change. In fact, the uniqueness and the glory of the Christian life is that a Christian is not just a nicer person or a smarter person, but they're new. That's why they're called born again. So a Christian doesn't lie because it's just wrong to lie. A Christian tells the truth because they have a renewed mind, a renewed heart, and so they have renewed speech. Paul says that, that's the writer of this book, the Apostle Paul, he says that you have the Spirit of God living in you. And so because you have the Spirit of God living in you, there is an elegant sensitivity in your life that the Spirit of God is so pure and that there's this union with, the, with God that is taking place in your life, your life radically changes. It's like taking... It's going to sound a little nerdy, but it's like taking this piece of code and writing it into the operating system of your heart. Because when you take... The nerds are smiling at me right now. <laughs> they, just, they just close their mouths. Uh, it's, when you take a piece of code and you write it into somebody's uh, operating system, it changes the whole nature of how that operating system functions. And in a sense, the core of that person's life, that entire system functions differently because of this insertion. Something has entered in. Um, this passage is two verses. We're going to focus on the first verse. We're going to spend like the next 30 minutes... Uh, hopefully no more than that, on just one verse, Um, but uh, thankfully we read the first two verses for context. There's two points, Uh, the what and the why. Very simple. You can't get more simple than that. The what, be imitators of God. The why, because you're dearly loved children. The what and the why. First, we're going to look at being imitators of God, the what. The Greek word literally says Mimic God. Human beings have been designed. They were built to model themselves after somebody. We're built to imitate. We're built to model. We have to imitate. We—that's how you learn. That's how you grow. The Bible says that human beings are made in the imago Dei, the image of God. In other words, we're built. We're designed to reflect God. See, on one hand, as he read in the call to worship, all creation reflects the image of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 19, that's what it says. So if you see the makeup of the solar system, if you go to Niagara Falls here on the East Coast or, or somewhere on the West Coast like the Grand Canyon, you just stand in awe and you recognize the work and the majesty and the beauty and the creativity and the power of God. But think about this. There's a tremendous difference between seeing your image in a, a pond, a water, a pool of water, versus seeing your image in a mirror. Why? Because a mirror is built, it's designed to reflect you totally. That's what a mirror does. Seeing the image off of a pool of water, uh, in, you know, it's, it's a, a blurry vision. It's you, but it's not you in, uh, in all of your beauty, in all of your glory, it's, it's still a fuzzy image. The Bible says that God has made us so uniquely and so clearly to reflect his own nature. And that mirror is built then to imitate him perfectly, right? Mirrors don't do their own thing. You stand in front of a mirror, it's designed to reflect you as you are. It's, it's not going to go off and change its mind and reflect something differently. Human beings, in the same way, are designed to imitate. And that makes sense, because if you look at your children, our children, they're controlled by models. They are built, designed to imitate mom and dad, their older brother, their older sister. They're designed that way. They're designed to imitate their elders. They're designed to imitate their elder brother. Everything they do. What does it mean to be the image of God? How do you apply this? One, it's... It means that we're built to imitate God. We're built to imitate something. Whatever you admire, you're going to reflect because in a sense, you're governed, you're controlled by the thing that you're ruled by. You become, to the degree that you love something, to the degree that you admire something, you are built to imitate that thing. To the degree that you love something, you're going to be built to mimic that thing. To the degree that you admire a person, you're going to become like that person. But two, here's a problem. second thing is the problem. Because we elevate a person uh, so much, that person is also broken. You're also broken. And so to the degree that you love that person, you also end up imitating qualities that you don't admire as well. And then that person whom you love has consumed you, has ruined you. Three, if you admire wealth, concepts, uh, if you admire wealth, if you admire uh, being good-looking, having a good figure, if you admire youthfulness, if you admire the fact that you don't, have, you don't need to have any responsibility in life, that's going to bring you joy for a little while. It's going to bring you a sense of power for a little while. It's going to give you a sense of freedom for a little while until you become like those things. What happens is then the wealth leads you to greed. If you just want to imitate just having a good figure, you're just going to become a superficial person or you're going to be used and manipulated and you're going to manipulate other people and use other people. That's what's going to happen. If you admire youthfulness to a great degree, you're gonna get old. It's gonna lead you to despair, to depression. If you admire not having responsibility in your life, not fearing consequences in your life, it's gonna lead you to loneliness because people will leave you, people will walk away from you. So even though we imitate the things that we love, we're broken imitators. Lastly, we are insufficient imitators. My favorite preacher, Tim Keller, he says this a mirror only reflects you in two dimensions. But the thing is, you are three-dimensional. And and so, in a sense, really what he's saying is that a mirror is insufficient. In a sense, what's sin? John Stott, great theologian, John Stott, he, he says that the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. In other words, man choosing not to be a reflection of God, choosing not to be an image of God. Think about this. In the Genesis, first book of the Bible, you have the Garden of Eden. And what does Satan tempt Adam of? What does he tempt of Eve? God says, you can have any fruit in this garden except that one, except that fruit from that tree. And what Satan does is, he says, that's because God does not want you to be like him. Even in paradise, man had access to God. Man had tremendous intimacy with God. There was no need. There was no sickness. There was no death. And yet, even though he had total access to God intimately, he was still dissatisfied. Why? Basically, what he's saying is, I want to make decisions for myself. I want to be able to live for myself. I'm wise enough. I can do this. Why would God withhold something that I desire so much? So instead of being an image of God, instead of reflecting God, He wanted to be God. All three dimensions of God. But see, the thing is, a mirror, at best, as Tim Keller says, reflects you in two dimensions. We want to be God in that we want to reflect all three dimensions. But you can't. Because look at the attributes of God. If you actually read into or look into the attributes of God. There are two types of attributes of God. You have the communicable attributes of God. That means that those are things like a disease. You can acquire these things. You can gain these things. Things like love and patience, wisdom, joy. Paul says you can imitate that. You can imitate love. Be imitators of God. Imitate his love. In fact, that's what he says. Love. Live a life of love. You can imitate patience, that means. You can imitate gentleness. You can imitate God's wisdom. You can imitate God's joy. But there are also incommunicable attributes of God, like omnipotence, all power, because God owns power itself. He is the source of power. Or you you can't imitate omniscience, That means that God knows everything, but he knows everything now at once. You can't imitate his self-sufficiency. God has no need. You can't imitate his self-existence. God has no beginning, no end. He was not created, and so he cannot be destroyed. You see that? You can't imitate his omnipresence. God is everywhere all at once. We can't ever be like those qualities of God, but we try To imitate those qualities of God because we so much want to be God. Think about this every time you worry, every time you're in anxiety, what are you saying? I'm afraid that God doesn't have my knowledge. I'm omniscient. I'm afraid that God doesn't have my wisdom. Only I know what's best for me. That's really what you're saying. And every time you grow bitter at God, what are you saying? I'm the omniscient one, not God. I know what's best for me, and God has failed me. Every time you go against God, every time you go against his values, every time you go against his heart, what you're saying is I am my own. I am omnipotent. That's what you're saying. You can't stop me. God can't stop me, even God. Every time you live it up. You know, uh, there's this uh, phenomenon in our generation today. We talk about the fear of missing out. Every time you experience the fear of missing out, what are you saying? I'm young, and I need to experience everything. In other words, I need to be omnipresent. The Bible says that the more you try, every time you try to be more than just the image of God, you actually become less than the image of God. Every time you become more than what you were designed to be, you actually become less than you were designed to be. Every time you try to be more than human, actually trying to be, you actually become less than human. You're actually lowering yourself. Every time you want to go up, you actually end up lowering yourself. You go down. Chapter 4, last week if you were here, we looked at verses 25 to 32, the last section of chapter 4 in Ephesians. And the Apostle Paul talks about forgiveness. Why? It's because we don't forgive. We're just not forgiving people, essentially. It was like that back then. It's like that today. And the reason why we don't forgive people, or at least one of the main reasons why we're not forgiving people, is because we believe that we're superior to that person. It's very difficult. It's virtually, the Bible says it's impossible to forgive somebody if you view yourself as superior to that person. In fact, the reason why you can't forgive is because you feel you're superior to that person. Because what you're saying is my sins, of course you're a sinner. Everybody here, if you're a church-going person at the least, you're going to agree to some degree. You're going to say, yeah, I'm a sinner generally. But when it comes to specifics, you're going to say that my sins are less. They're less impactful, less hurtful than the other person's sin against me. You're going to focus on the other person's sin when the Bible says the new self actually focuses on their own sin and desires reconciliation as a result. And so you can't forgive because you always believe that you're higher than you really are. And so what are you saying? You judge people, right? And because what? We think we are the omniscient ones. That's why you can't forgive because you think you're omnipotent, you think you're omniscient. You think you're the judge. What are you doing? You're trying to imitate the incommunicable attributes of God. I just gave you pretty much a great lesson on the doctrine of God. You don't even know it, okay? On one hand, we're built to reflect God. On the other hand, we are poor, broken reflections of God. You take a mirror, and that gives you a reflection of who you are, but actually what we are, we are a broken mirror. You take a mirror, take a bat, smash that mirror, that's who we are in terms of our ability to reflect the nature of God. Christianity is what? The process of being restored into the image of God again. Because the more you try to be God, you actually become less than the image of God. And so Christianity restores us, really. Faith in Jesus Christ is, is, leads us into this process of becoming the image of God again. And in a way, you're never going to be perfect imitators. We're, we're like the younger siblings. Our motor skills, our mind, our will, our patience, it's just not as good as our elder siblings. You know, at least when you're children, when you're an infant to a child, your elder siblings, they're leagues ahead of you. We're very broken, we're very weak, we're very young. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, You're infants, and this is how you grow, right? That's what he says. That's a whole part of the latter half of chapter four. And so, growth. Happens by way of imitating something, more by imitating than not. Right? So you need to be deliberate. You need to be intentional. You can't wait on one hand for God to do something to you. God did everything that he needs for you to change. You've been saved. You've been freed. You've been free to live as you've been designed to live. Second Corinthians chapter 3, where the Lord is, there is freedom. And you see this in the, in the word of encouragement that we read today, right? Where the Lord is, there is freedom. And as you behold God's beauty, I'm basically paraphrasing what that verse says. As you behold God's beauty, you will be transformed into his likeness from one degree of splendor to the next degree of splendor. That's imitation. We don't like that. We say, just give me the answers. Just give me the rules. We're entitled. Just give me the answers. And if you read the Bible as a manual that just gives you answers, you're going to be very confused because most of the rules that you read in the Bible, most of the ceremonies and the rituals and the sacrifices, even some of the regulations, they're old. In fact, Christ says, I've come to to basically fulfill these things. And in a sense, that's why we don't worship in temples. That's why we're not in synagogues anymore. Not here. That's why we don't have priests that's why we don't make sacrifices. Jesus has come and as a fulfillment of all those things, has abolished those things. Why? Because God is not programming you. He's teaching you to become like his child so that you would think like him, so that you'd be moved like him, so that you would respond like him, so that you would love like him, so that you would value what he values and so you would develop his wisdom just like him. Be imitators of God. That's the first point. Why? How? How do you become like him? And Paul says, he says, As dearly loved children. As his children. Because you are dearly loved children of God. Sonship. Adoption. The doctrine of salvation. The doctrine of justification by faith. Is that when you receive Jesus as your savior... Your record, your sinfulness on the cross, we teach this every week at Metro, your record, your sinfulness is transferred to Jesus, and Jesus' record, Jesus' work, Jesus' perfect merit is transferred to you. We call that double imputation. Lots of theological terms here, right? But what that ultimately means is that God treats you as a result as he would treat Jesus. Jesus' righteousness is credited to you. Jesus' holiness is credited to you. If sin is man substituting himself for God, salvation is God substituting himself for man. Who is Jesus? Jesus Christ is the Son. That means he is the heir. That means he's righteous. He is truly acceptable. Because he is holy, he is perfect, he is truly righteous, he is truly good, truly faithful. Hebrews says, the author of the book of Hebrews says, that he is so good, so faithful, so righteous, he is the exact representation of God. He is the radiance of God's glory. That is an amazing word, because when you talk about the radiance of God's glory, it takes you all the way back to the Old Testament, when God used to appear before his people in a fire, in a fiery pillar. In a radiant cloud. He's saying, Jesus is that. You want to look at the radiance of God's glory? You look at Jesus. Jesus Christ is God. And so he deserves kindness. He deserved the honor of God. He deserved the power of God. And so on the cross, when he died, and when the Bible says that that righteousness is credited to you, that means that you receive the kindness you receive the honor you receive the power his beauty becomes your beauty because he's a son because he's the son you are a son because jesus is righteous you are righteous and because god sees you as righteous acceptable that's what that means that's how we become acceptable Because the Father views us and treats us as acceptable, that's how you grow into becoming acceptable. If you don't see yourself as a child of God, you're not going to live as a child of God. That's what this means. And unless you see yourself as God's child, you will never grow as God's child. Remember, the Roman world, the concept of adoption in the ancient Roman times was very, very formal. Very formal. Even more formal than today. So if you were adopted, if a man did not have heirs, if a man did not have sons in particular, if you were adopted, that meant that when that man died, you received your father's wealth. That meant that you received his treasure. It meant that you received his name. It meant that you, if he had a good reputation, you have a good reputation you receive all the privileges of sonship it was a legal transaction that was made that was a forensic formal transaction that was made but it's also most important and fundamental in seeing that it was the way that we it's the way that we need to relate to god as our father it's very important it is fundamental in our lives in that we need to relate To God as our Father, the way the ancient Romans viewed adoption. Think about this. Of all the ways that Jesus could have taught us how to pray, when the disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray in Matthew, when Jesus taught them how to pray, of all the ways he could have taught them, he begins with what? Our shepherd who art in heaven. Is that what he says? No. Our creator who art in heaven our King who art in heaven, because all these things are true and all these things are real. But he teaches us to pray our Father who art in heaven. The Muslim world, the Muslim Quran has 400 names for God. None of them refer to God as Father. We we pray reflecting on God We begin our prayers reflecting on God as our Father. That should transform everything you think about when you pray. Think about it. Because if you're going to God as your bellhop, and every time you pray, it's like ringing a bell, He is your employee. If you go to God as the employer, right, the way your posture, what you're positing, very, very different. But if you go to God as your Father, there's sonship adoption all the rights you're going to him with all the privileges it's that image that i've shared before in the 1960s when you had when john f kennedy president kennedy that famous picture of him conducting business matters in the oval office but underneath his desk is who his child is sitting there hiding right because he has access everybody else has to have a meeting everybody else has to set up an appointment you can't even get straight to the president Everybody else has to make an appointment, but his son can just barge into the room at any point in time, and he will be embraced by his father. What does it mean to be a Christian? Because you're going to say, well, it means to believe in Jesus. Yes, absolutely. Oh, It means you're forgiven. Absolutely. It means you're made new. Sure, it means you're made new. But part of being born again, think about the phrase, part of being born again means what? Inherently, you have a father. You have a new father. You're born again. Yes, your sins are wiped away because your sins have been transferred to Jesus on the cross. And so the blood of Jesus cleanses you from all your unrighteousness because, we talked about it last week, a debt had to have been paid. A transaction had to have been made. Somebody had to pay the price of the hurt and the betrayal and the grieving because we all feel that way. Every time you've been hurt, every time you've been betrayed by somebody, if it's meaningful, the more meaningful they are to you, the more hurt you are, the more you feel like they have to pay. They've incurred some sort of emotional and spiritual debt towards you. So, yes, you are forgiven. Your sins have been transferred to Jesus on the cross. Jesus Christ paid that price. He said, it is finished on the cross. That's what it means. You're, because of his blood, you have been cleansed from all your unrighteousness. And the gospel isn't less than that. The gospel is certainly not less than that, but it's so much more than that. Here at Metro, we use adoption language. Jack Miller, if you ever grew up in the Presbyterian church, Probably the non-Asian Presbyterian Church, in particular, you would have heard of Jack Miller, because he's probably the most prominent, influential, uh, pastoral Presbyterian minister in the Philadelphia area. Wrote a ton of books, taught a lot of classes, but he instilled one thing over and over and over, and that's the difference between someone who lives like an orphan and someone who lives like a child of God, because a child has a father, a child has a name, a child has an identity. If you are a child, you have a home, but not an orphan. An orphan has no father. An orphan has no name. An orphan has no identity as a result. An orphan has no home. Because a child has a father and a name and an identity and a home, a child belongs. And because he belongs, there's a confidence, there's a boldness. Because a child has a name, a name that he has not earned. He doesn't need to prove himself anymore. There is the end of pride. Because a child has a father and because he knows he's loved, there is the end of jealousy. There is the end of snobbiness. There is the end of comparisons. There is the end of boasting. You know why there's no boasting? Because he didn't earn it. It was given to him. He was adopted, you see. If you're a child, there's the end of trying to earn your way into the Father's love because if the, you would understand that the Father paid a tremendous price to adopt you. He is sacrificing all of His freedoms to have you. He is sacrificing all the future joys that He would have had if He wasn't a father and all the heartache. He would, he would say, hey, I'm not going to spare myself of all the heartache I would have endured. He's saying, I'm willing to take the risk and I'm willing to pay the price to have this child. There's the end of boasting. There's the end of jealousy. There's the end of slaving. It's the beginning of humility. And there's tremendous kindness if you're a child. There's kindness. What are some of the privileges of being a child? What are some of the privileges? of being adopted. I'm going to share with you a couple things. One, there's access. Because an employee can be fired, but not a son, because a son is in. See, parents, some of you, a lot of you are not parents yet, but if you are a parent, you know that your life is absolutely entwined, knit to your children, no matter what. No matter what they look like, no matter what they, how they behave, your life is absolutely tied to theirs. Parents, if you're a good parent, parents are the last people to give up on their children. Parents will always pursue their children. Parents will always champion their children. Parents will always root for their children, almost to a fault, almost on the brink, if not you've crossed the line, you are in idolatry. But what does it then mean to be a child of God? then remember in the bible when you're referring to being god's child the bible usually refers to refers you as a son of god because in the ancient world women had no rights to be a child of god to be sons and daughters of god the way a lot of our bibles today are translated it had no meaning it actually muddies the meaning If a person in the ancient world said, I get to be a son and daughter of God, that would actually destroy the meaning. It would ruin the meaning because women had no rights. And to equate a son and a daughter to be the same thing, it would ruin the meaning. And so Paul says this, you are sons of God. To be a child, oftentimes you're referred to as a son because what he's saying is you could be in the lowest class, and a daughter in the lowest class, and yet still be a son of God. That's what he's saying. You can be sons. You have access. A son had access. In the ancient world, a son had rights. If an employee messed up, if an employee messed up, he would lose access. Today, you would lose your badge, right? You would lose access in your badge, right? That meant you are condemned. You are shut out but a child always has access. That means there's no condemnation. Let's apply this. When you mess up morally, when you mess up ethically, when you mess up relationally, a lot of times we punish ourselves. We just beat ourselves up. There's self-loathing. We just punish, our, punish ourselves with shame. And you're, it's because your life is up and down. And it's based on whether or not how well you've obeyed, how well you've lived up to the standards of the other person. And, and so when you mess up, you're down. When you do well, there's pride. When you mess up, there's tremendous self-loathing. And it's because you don't live like you have ultimate access if that's how you view your relationship with god you're living like an orphan that's how you're living as if you don't have access if you don't live up to the standards if you fail in anything what happens you question where you stand with god and we do that when you mess up relationally you question where you stand with that person If you're caught in something, doing something against a person, whether it's at work, against your coworkers, your colleagues, your bosses, your friends, you always question where you stand with others. But if you live like that, in the presence of God, in your relationship with God, that's called orphan behavior, right? Because what you're doing is you're questioning your access. If you beat yourself up because I deserve it, and so the more, if there's kind of some sort of sensation that you experience where when you give yourself what you deserve, you feel better for a little while, right? People do that. You're living like an orphan. That's what Paul says. If you live like that, you're destroying yourself. You're ruining your life. You will never be able to imitate God if you live that way because you don't have intimacy with God. That kind of God you cannot take delight in. That kind of God will never take delight in you because you always mess up. You're always a mess. We're all broken. You will never be able to imitate God. Two, it means that there's tremendous care. There's tremendous love. You receive the shepherding care of God. Parents are willing to die for their children. It's an amazing thing. It goes against natural selection. Stronger sacrificing themselves for the weaker. In fact, the more weak, the more diseased, the more sick, the more, if nature has disregarded the child, the parent actually ends up loving the child more. Explain that. It goes, it goes against evolution in some ways. Parents are willing to die for their children. Parents will be willing to take the, the place of their children. Parents always want to take the place because they know, I can do it for you. I can do it better. You have to almost fight yourself, almost to a fault. I heard a story uh, at Johnson & Johnson. uh, The management was uh, being educated, uh, dealing with our millennial generation today because uh, they're all looking for jobs. And on one hand, you have very anxious millennials looking for a job, and the parents see their children suffering. And there's a true story. There's a story about a person who was sick, the day before an interview at Johnson & Johnson. And so, uh, you know, uh, what, what happened? The mom called the manager and basically asked the manager if she could come in and interview in his place. You know how ridiculous that sounds? You know how ridiculous that is? Whether you are the manager or the son, I would skip the interview on principle had I found out that my mom called me call the manager to, to tell them that she would like to take my... I, even if I felt better the next day, I, don't, I wouldn't go. I couldn't show my face, right? But that's how parents are. It's not so unnatural in that sense. It's a ridiculous story. It's a true story, but it's not so... The concept isn't so ridiculous. With parents, they're willing to take the place of their kids. They don't want to see their kids suffer. You will never be able to keep your parents from worrying about you no matter how old you are. Because what's critical to being a parent is this, wanting to protect the child, care for the child, wanting what's best for the child. No father will ever withhold what's best for his child. So if a father says no, if you go up to your father and he says no, it's because he knows his wisdom. In his wisdom, he knows what the child wants. What that child wants will inevitably destroy that child, will inevitably damage that child parents, they worry about their children. They can't stop. It's almost to a fault. A good parent will always want to stay involved to the end, but it's also why a good parent will also discipline their child. Think about this. Is it wise to say, God has never answered my prayers, so he must not exist? Is that wise? Is that wisdom? God has never answered my prayers, and so he must not be loving? parents can't stop from being involved so if they say no if they don't answer if they're silent it's not because of the absence of their love it's actually more because of the presence of their love if you knew the heart of God you would be praying for what he wants for you not what you want you're still trying to imitate the incommunicable attributes of God but you'll be able to imitate God as your father if you see him as your care, if you see him with access. Thirdly, you get rights. One of the privileges of sonship is you have the rights of the son. Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Parents work tremendously hard. Parents treasure a lot of things. But of all the things that they treasure, there's nothing they will treasure more than you. There's nothing they will treasure more than you. You are worth more than every treasure they own. And they will labor so that you will have what they have. There's a sort of union that you share with your parents. If they're successful, you are successful. If they hurt, you hurt. Right? Actually, if you hurt, they hurt. If you're sick, they're sick. If you're lost, they're lost. So if you're constantly working to earn love, always feeling the debt of sin, always uh, feeling the weight of sin, uh, that's not humility. That's actually pride. You're living like an orphan. Humility results in gratitude, pride works itself in what? Working, slaving, earning, proving yourself, right? Don't you get it? If you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and that you have been declared righteous, you have been credited with the righteousness of God, then you are an heir. You have rights as a son. You have treasure because you are the treasure, to the degree that you know that, to the degree that you trust that, the father becomes your treasure. You will delight in him and you will imitate because what we love, we imitate. But lastly, there's submission. There's submission. In our day, we think, uh, we think that we're good parents because unlike the previous generation, we're able to communicate in our child's language, right? We're cooler, than our parents' generation. That's what we say, right? We're able to communicate better with our children. That's what we want to believe. So we sit and we reason with our children, right? Because, uh, you know, think about this. Reasoning with the children, for us, it means explaining to them, justifying for them why you make the decisions that you make. You're appealing to their reason, their sense of rationale, their, their wisdom, their intelligence, right? And so when you say no there's always this kind of sitting and justifying, explaining why you can't do something. Now, the nature of a a child, you're actually not allowing a child to be a child. You're actually bringing that child to be, you're actually making that child an adult. You're actually trying to get a child who's only capable of being a child to become an adult. You're actually devaluing and robbing the child of his childhood, in a sense. That's what you're doing. The nature of a child is to submit to the authority of a parent. Right? Do you know what? Let me define the word authority for you because the root word of authority is what? Author. Creator. You are over that child by the sheer virtue of the fact that you created that child. So you are an author. You are an authority. If you're always explaining yourself, if you're always justifying yourself, who's in charge? Because you fear that child. You fear his resentment. You fear his anger. The child is acting like an orphan. You have to restore that child as a son. Orphans have no father. And so because they have no father, they have no authority. So the question I have to ask as a pastor, are you governed by your father? Have you submitted yourself Have you placed yourself under the rule of your Father, who is all-wise and all-powerful? If God, think about this, if God is powerful enough to control everything, to own everything, to rule everything, and to give anything, he must at least be, and if he says no, then it must be because he's at least wise enough to say no, wise enough to say yes. He must have a wisdom we don't have. And a church is a people belonging to God. Trust in his wisdom. Trust in his wisdom. Don't just believe in him, believe him. Don't just believe in the word, believe the word. You see. How do you know what it means to be like a son? How? The ultimate question, the ultimate ending to every metro sermon. How do you get there? You have to look to God's only son. You have to look to God's only son. Jesus Christ was dearly loved. You know, in Mark chapter 1, Jesus is being baptized. And the passage says that as he was being baptized, the heavens opened up and the Spirit of God descended on Jesus like a dove. And God there spoke. First of all, the heavens opened up. There is the access. And God says, listen to him. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. What he's saying is this. He's doting on his son. He's loving his son. He's looking at his son. He's getting baptized, and he's just loving his son so much that he just had to go down there and root for his son. That's what he's doing. And God gave Jesus everything he ever needed Right? Jesus came homeless. Jesus was born naked and pretty much lived a homeless existence. And yet God gave him everything he needed. God cared for his son. God loved his son. And Jesus prayed always with gratitude to the Father for giving him everything he ever needed. Even though he didn't have much. He lived a subsistent lifestyle. But he always was thankful to the Father. He knew the Father's heart. And he knew what the Father wanted. So Jesus Christ was truly meek. Blessed are the meek. He was truly meek. Jesus often said, the Father and I are one. There's the union. He knew who he was. He knew he was the Son of God. He knew he was the heir. He knew he had treasure. He knew he had rights. And yet he never complained. He never complained of what he didn't have. Look at the love of Christ. Look at the faithfulness of Jesus always trusting the Father, always loving the Father, always glorifying the Father, always obeying the Father. And yet, the Father sent His Son to the cross to die. And on the cross, Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, what He's saying is, now I've lost access. I've lost the care of the Father. I've lost the rights of a Son. I've lost union with the Father. I have been forsaken. I've lost the name of the Father. I've lost the reputation of the Father. I've lost the identity of the Father. The Son lost the Father. We said the parents, when they see their son suffering, what happens? They're suffering. So that means if the Son lost the Father, then the Father lost the Son. Look at the suffering love of the Father. If the son is sick and hurting, the father is sick and hurting. And the son said, I am disfranchised from the father, separated from the father. That meant the father was separated from the son. The Trinity was ripped apart. It wasn't a pretty sight. It was ripped apart. So in a sense, when Jesus died, the father died. Parents, we say parents, they're willing to die for their children. Our father sacrificed his son, you see. What treasure would be worth giving up your own son? I mean, it must have been worth it. What treasure would have been worth God giving up his own son, his love, so that when he died, it would be as if God had died, but what treasure would be worth dying for? And the answer as pedantic as you could say it, you, you are that treasure. You were the one that was worth it. Jesus Christ lost the Father so that we would have the Father. Jesus Christ lost His sonship so that we would have sonship. Jesus Christ lost the rights of sons. He gave it up. Why? Philippians chapter 2 said He emptied Himself. That means He emptied Himself of His rights. Why? So that we would have the rights of sons. Jesus Christ was disowned by God, forsaken. Why? So that we would be owned by God, a people belonging to God. That's what 1 Peter chapter 2 says. Jesus Christ lost the rights, lost the care, lost the access. Why? So that we would have the rights, we would have the care, we would have access. And yet, do you know, he imitated the love of God to the end, even as he received the wrath of God. To the end, he demonstrated and imitated forgiveness, the love of God, faithful to the end. He's saying, it's worth it. I will take every pain down to the last drop. It will be worth it. To the end, Jesus Christ honored the Father as the Son. Even he was imitating because he had lost his sonship, and yet he was imitating son, being a son. Even as the Father turned his face away, trusted to the end, will you look to Jesus. And imitate the Son. I mean, if you see that He has done that for you, it would be personal. If Jesus Christ has done that for you, it would be personal. Every time you look at the cross, make it personal. He did it for you. And if to the degree that you trust how much the Father loves you, you would delight in the Father. You would imitate that which you love. You would love and imitate the Son. As God's children, you will honor the Father. Galatians chapter 4 When the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law so that we might receive the full rights of sons. And when you look to the cross, there's the access you need. There's the love. There's the validation that you need. You can trust that the Father cares for you because what Father would withhold anything from the son that he loves. You would know that the father loves you. You would know that he cares for you. You would know that you are an heir. You would know that you have rights and have access. You can go to him. You would pray with the father's heart. If God is willing to sacrifice his own son, would he not give you everything that you need? When he grieves, when you grieve, that means he grieves. When you're hurting, that means he's hurting. When you pray, it means he hears. When he calls then, will you submit? Submit to his calling. Submit to when he says no. Submit to his authority. Submit to the fact that he is your author, your creator. You can imitate because God has also given you the power through His Holy Spirit. You've been built for this. Let's pray.